church. We're, we're so glad you're here. I'm going to let you introduce your, your, your wife and family when you, when you come, but uh, we're so glad you're here. So let me pray for you, and then we'll uh, let you come, okay? Father, we thank you for the grace that we've received um, in Christ Jesus. At great cost to yourself, and yet, Lord, free for us. Mm. Lord, not a, not a, not a cheap grace, um, but Lord, free for us. Father, we thank you for uh, just um, the, the, the forgiveness of sin, the, the, the family of faith. Lord, the, the adoption, the, the reconciliation with you. Lord, the, the home in heaven. Lord, all the, the spiritual benefits that we enjoy. I pray, Father, that you might give us, God, in our hearts, Lord, a, a, a burning desire, uh, Lord, to, to share this good news with others. Uh, Lord, to the praise of Your glorious grace, that You, Lord, uh, your, your name and Your fame might be known to all the world. Until all the world hears, Lord, I, I pray that You would help us, God, both to celebrate and to, to talk about the grace that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Thank You for Hunter. I thank You for uh, the encouragement from your, your Word in the first service. And I pray, God, that, again, that You would use him as an instrument of Your grace to encourage and challenge the saints here. That If there's someone here who's lost, God, that they might be made fully aware of their sin, then You might grant them, Lord, repentance and faith. And today would be their day of salvation. Thank You for Your goodness to us. May You, uh, Lord, again, encourage us through the Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good afternoon, almost. Uh, my better half has made it for the second service. This is my wife, Layton. Uh, she brought in two little kids with her. The three-year-old boy is Truett, and the one-year-old daughter is Baylor. They're back in the back for the first time ever, right, in nursery. If you hear screaming, it's probably them. <laughs> probably what happened is the three-year-old kissed the one-year-old too hard, and she fell over. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, we've been married for almost six years. Uh, she's the crazy woman who followed me all the way to Virginia to work at Heart Cry. I tried to talk her out of it, but she was convinced that's what she wanted to do. So here we are. Uh, I have worked with Heart Cry Missionary Society for four years almost. Um, I started working over the area of what we called Eurasia of uh, Belarus, Russia, and Kazakhstan. The way that it works is all of it was sort of one unit. There was a guy previously before me who left who was over a lot of different sections of a lot of different continents. And so whenever he left to go be a pastor, there was a lot of small sections up for grabs. And then slowly over time, I've worked my way south into the area of Eastern Europe and then east, I guess, into... Uh, west into southern Europe and then now um, Europe we've counted as one continent so as one block there are um, 84 pastors that we support across the continent from uh, Ireland, Scotland all the way to Russia um, the primary work of HeartCry is we financially support pastors, missionaries um, men who are planting churches every single month. The way that that work began was in the 1980s. Paul Washer, who maybe you know who that is, he moved as a missionary to Peru. 
and he was there and he was working and he met a lot of pastors who were already doing a good job as pastors and he kind of looked around and realized it takes however much per month to have an American there. If he were to give his salary to 10 Peruvian pastors, they could work on the same amount of money. And so he said, my work here I think is done. I can go to the U.S. and sort of advocate for these guys and, and help have a voice for these pastors who nobody knows who they are, but they're working, they're laboring. And so that's what he did um, about 30 years ago, 25 years ago is, is when he moved. And now, as we mentioned before, there are 360 missionary families in 66 different countries, everywhere from Latin America to, there's some in Canada, to so North America, Europe, Africa, Asia. The place that we're not in that I want to be in is Australia, except I look at the flights from the U.S. to Australia, and it's terrible. It's like 22 hours on an airplane. So I'm praying for a laborer to be raised up to go to Australia, because I don't think I could do it. It's eight hours to go from the U.S. to Europe, and that's long enough for me. That's plenty. Last year, I went to Cambodia. So to go to Cambodia, you fly from Atlanta to South Korea, and that was 15 hours. And I thought I was going to die. So adding six or seven more hours on top of that is just not for me. But the work that we do is to support pastors because in a lot of cases, um, there are pastors who are shepherding their churches, they're preaching on Sunday, they're they're ministering, and they also have to work a full-time job. And if you consider the amount of work that it is to have a full-time job and to have a second full-time job of pastoring, it just doesn't work. And so we have... um, the idea that if we free the man from ministry and doing what he's called to do, hopefully God will bless the work that he's able to give himself fully to this one task of ministry, and hopefully the church will grow, and hopefully the church can take over the man's support over time. Um, we don't just give a monthly amount. We would also help if there is some extraordinary benevolent need. In a lot of cases, and even places in Europe, they have like a, a health system, a healthcare system, but it takes a long time to get anything done. If it's some special procedure, it takes even longer, and it's not uh, easy, and it's not guaranteed that it would be the, the best thing to do. For example, there was a guy in Romania. Uh, he was about my age or a little younger, and he had some problem where he had to have a surgery on his heart. And if he were in the U.S., they could go in through a vein and do the surgery, and it would be no problem. But in Romania, unless he went with the private system, uh, they had to open up his chest and do open heart surgery. And I was there this year in April. He was talking to me and saying, well, you know, it's, it's too much to, to pay for the private option. He said, I'm going to have to get my chest cut open and fixed. And I said, well, how much would it be to just go the private option? He said, $10,000. And I said, how soon could they do it? He said, next week. And I said, well, why haven't you done it? And he said, I don't have the money. And so we actually agreed to help the guy. And then somehow he had a connection with the church in the U.S. And that church gave the money to cover his surgery. So we are willing to help with those kinds of things because of all the missions giving around the world, those are the least fun things to spend money on. But we want to care for a guy in a sort of holistic way. It's, it's not just, here's a you know, paycheck, but it's, let us care for your family and let us show you some degree of love of what I said in the first service about what do we have in our hand that we can give the guy. Um, we would help with what we call ministry tools sometimes. We're, we're decreasing on some of these things because our hearts got ahead of our hands and we realized we were giving too much to people. But ministry tools as in 
if there's some pastors who have a ministry to drive to different villages and visit different pastors and churches, and to do that you have to have a car, and uh, we would be willing in some cases to help with that kind of need, or we'll give books all day long to pastors so they can study. We are people who insist on expository preaching, to where you should read the passage, proclaim what it says, but if you don't have any books, how can you know what it says? Every once in a while you get lucky if you read it enough, but it, 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 it helps to have a library of, especially if the guys can speak English, it's easy to just um, share some books. With digital books especially, I mean, in an instant you can buy a couple of good commentary sets and send them to a pastor and they'll benefit him for the rest of his life. Uh, very, very, very rarely we will buy a church building for a man. So there's cases where churches grow just astronomically. There's, there's one guy in Spain that I always think of. He's in his mid-twenties. Like he's a, a young guy to be pastoring. And uh, I asked a friend of mine who knows him who's older, who was his professor in seminary, I said, why is this guy's church growing? Like, what is he doing that's making it successful? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, he's not really that smart. He's not really that, like, you know, good-looking. He said, there's no carnal reason why his church should grow. But he said, somehow in God's grace, he said, the church just continues to grow. And this church had a, a chance to... They were renting a, a facility, and they had a chance to basically have a loan from the owner of the building. If they paid a certain deposit, they could keep paying that same rental amount, and the building would be theirs. And in a lot of places in Spain, that's a huge thing. So we helped give an amount for that. There was a church in Venezuela that we saw pictures of. There was a building maybe like this size with a lot of windows, and people were standing outside to hear the preaching. And we didn't work in Venezuela then. That was last year. And so we sent a trusted guy from Ecuador to go to Venezuela to check the work out to see is it really a good guy doing a good work with good doctrine. And he said, yes, it's great. You should do it. So because the owner of the building of the church in Venezuela was an American, we were able to buy that building for the church in Venezuela. So now they have a meeting place and they don't have to stand outside. So really, it's kind of like I mentioned at the end of the last session. We pray for open doors. We have principles and rules and things that we stick to. We try to follow the patterns that we see in Scripture. But we also recognize rules are kind of like guidelines sometimes that if the Lord leads in a certain direction, we just go with it. Um, but really our desire is to see not a network of heart cry churches. We don't really use the name. We, we prohibit guys from using our logo or trying to use anyone's name. We want to see biblical, healthy, mature churches established all around the world. And hopefully we're a means of doing that. So that we want churches to be financially independent from us with time. So that if we collapse someday or if we're cut off from working in the world, the church keeps going. and Because there are countries where Churches are planting churches without any outside help, and we praise God for it. We're trying to work ourselves out of a job, more or less, in, in the work that we do. We've also started, we've always gone, like if I take a trip, one trip that I take to Europe to visit the pastors will be sort of like for visiting. Like if it's a new work, it helps a lot to sit with the man in his house, meet his family, see his church, um, just listen to him and talk to him. So like a visitation kind of trip is more laid back. The other kind of trip would be where we go and we'll have a conference, some kind of teaching. So in Europe, pastors don't really need like basic sound doctrine. They've got it, probably. They need to be encouraged, like, remember the basics of, you know, your Christian life. Or 
Um, so that's what I do more of. But then we'll go like to places in Asia or in Africa where they don't have a lot of sound teaching. And it's teaching systematically through basic doctrines that we would all know probably. We've started to be more strategic in doing that. And so we have, uh, I forget what we're calling it. There's some title for it just so we don't say the training thing. But it's like a training thing where there's a guy who's designing a curriculum that will take and teach um, to teach pastors. Because there are some pastors who would teach like some prosperity preacher. And it's because they haven't ever been taught otherwise. There are other pastors who teach that way knowingly because they love themselves and they want the money. So we are trying to go into places and weed out who are the guys who are in it for the money and kick them out. Who are the guys who just have never had education and try to help them. So it's a, it's a challenge and a task. And um, it's similar, I think, to what you guys are doing in Southern Africa. Trying to instruct, trying to help, trying to, to teach. But one of the more unique things about Heart Cry is there are ministries that are doing... Uh, more than what we're doing. There are ministries that are doing what we're doing better than what we're doing. There are ministries that are doing different than what we're doing that's helping the things that we're trying to do. But in all of our 30 years, uh, we've never raised a single dollar for ourselves. We've never asked for funds. We've never had a need that we knew about and made it known to anyone. Our desire, which I say this speaking because it's Paul Washer's desire when he started Heart Cry, was he said, he didn't want to have a ministry and always wonder, is it my flesh manipulating this work or is it God doing the work? And so he read the model of George Mueller who had orphanages and churches and ministries and even for his own salary, he never asked for anything. He just prayed and God provided it. So we've carried on the same thing to where it's online, so I'll share the number with you. We spent and received $10 million last year to support the 300 and something families. We didn't ask for any of it. And that, I can say without boasting, because it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness, not of our own work. We always say, we have a set of things that we call core values that are supposed to be like, what are we trying to be? One of those things is that we say, God could have put better men in this pulpit in the position that we're in, but he put us and he called us to it. And so we meet every morning for prayer to try to demonstrate our, our dependence on his help and his provision for us. And I can say in my four years, there have been extraordinary times that God has provided in a way that we could not explain apart from his help. You imagine that over 30 years of Paul Washer, if he were here, he's, he could tell you story after story after story of the way that, you know, the end of the year was coming, he needed money, there was nothing, and then all of a sudden it showed up beyond what he could have asked or thought. And so this ministry, insofar as God has carried it, is a demonstration of his faithfulness. But it's not because we're special, it's not. It's, it's who God is in his character, in his fullness, in his majesty, the way that he provides for the laborers in Matthew chapter 10 is the way that he provides for all of us. That if we believe God will care for us, if we believe that he's called us to the work, he'll provide everything that's needed to finish the task at hand. So that's heart cry in a nutshell. Let me take you to Ephesians uh, chapter 6. So we talked more or less in the last session about what it means to have a, a great commission and the call on each of us and the task that we have. 
And it was a message first to the disciples, but then also to us in the right way. The Great Commission for us is a call for us all to contribute in so far as God has given us and provided for us. But that's sort of like looking at the 30,000 foot view of how should we spend our lives and resources and what should we do. This, I hope, will be sort of a, uh, a narrower focus on every day when we wake up, what should we think about? So, the book of Ephesians maybe is the most profound, one of the deepest, I think, theologically books that we have in the New Testament. You could read, as we did Ephesians chapter 1, and go through and just think, how did Paul write this letter? You know, he starts out with the depths of the gospel about every blessing we have in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 was the first passage that I ever memorized as a set of verses. Um, You think about what it means for there to be no dividing wall of hostility, that we're all one in Christ, there's no division, there's no upper and lower class. You, you go on and Paul explains the gospel and then he begins to apply it and say, this is what it means for you. So it's not just something that we would believe as a theological or theoretical term, but it, it has implications for all of our life. So as Paul goes on in chapter 4 and chapter 5, he talks about what it means to love one another, what it means to love your wife and your children, what it means to, to live like a Christian, all because of what Christ has done. And then he gets to chapter 6. And in chapter 6 and verse 10, he starts out, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And if you're like me, you read that and you think, Okay, when I was uh, 20 years old and in college, I could say, Alright, I'm going to stand up and be strong. You would think, I can do it. You know, I can, I can make myself strong. I can enable myself to do what God has called me to do. And then you had a, a couple of kids and you had, I think my watch said that I woke up 13 times last night. When you add that in the mix, you don't feel so strong anymore. But you also have the reality that whenever you're working in your workplace or if God's called you into some kind of vocational ministry, I feel extremely inadequate for the work that I do every single day. And so you read this verse and you think, Paul, why would you say to be strong? Like what, you're commanding me to do something that I can't do myself. You're saying, be strong in the Lord, but we respond and say, I can't do it. Well, here's the problem, is that Paul's not saying, do this. He's saying, be strong in a sort of passive sense. He's saying, in other words, be strengthened in the Lord. Be strengthened in the strength of His mind. So it's this idea that God's not looking down on us and saying, okay, physician, heal thyself. He's not looking at us and saying, okay, servant, go and do this and then figure it out. If Christ gave all power and authority to to the disciples to go be apostles and go out into the world, He gave them the mission, and He gave them what they needed for the mission. Mm -hmm. He's telling us in the same way, because Paul's writing to church members. Mm -hmm. He's saying, I've given you a task. I've called you to this high level of self-sacrifice and of of servanthood. And He says, and I'm going to give you the things that you need to accomplish that mission. So He says, be strong in the Lord of knowing the things that God has done for you in Christ. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, knowing what has been done for you, Remember those things and be strong in them. Know the work, the great links that Christ has gone on your behalf to have salvation brought to you. Know what He's done for you. And know that He won't leave you at the point of salvation, but sanctification being on your own. He says, know that Christ will carry you all the way until the end. But He also adds something else in verse 11. 
He says, put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you read that, full armor of God. And so it's a picture. If you can imagine there was a soldier up here. Yesterday was Veterans Day. You imagine this person getting dressed for battle. So they have a certain pants and shirt and shield and boots and everything else. They don't walk in wearing a suit and tie to go on the battlefield. They would walk in with certain armor or certain things that would make them a soldier. So there is something, Paul says, called the full armor of God. And he'll explain what that is in a moment, but he says the full armor of God is for the purpose to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so it's more or less what I was explaining in the first session about the challenge we have is living every day for him in a life of self-sacrifice. It's realizing what's at stake and that there are eternal realities that we cannot see that inform our everyday life, or at least they should. It's the schemes of the devil in that Satan would be happy if all of us could be here today and spend the next six days never giving a thought to him or to what he's doing to undermine the church's efforts. It's, it's the idea that we're called to be a certain way as a church, to have a certain level of unity and of fellowship and of communion with God by himself, but also with one another. And if Satan can keep us from doing those things and the church remains weak, then Satan is happy and his plan will prevail. So he goes on in verse 12, and he explains further, our struggle, or our battle, is not against flesh and blood. So we could look, and you think, okay, a heart cry is trying to reach the 1040 window. There are 60 more countries that we haven't entered into. What's it going to take to reach those 60 countries? And you could look at it from one way, and you could think, it's going to take... Uh, some of these governments who would stone you if you become a Christian, them to become Christian, or their leadership to fall. And that might be true, that might be what it takes. There's one man that I heard, and there was a big question and answer at a big international conference, and somebody said, what's the biggest obstacle to church planting in the world? And the man responded and said, money. You, you could look at it from that perspective and think, okay, maybe there's all kinds of people who are ready to go to the mission field and they just need some money. That's not what Paul says is the greatest need. That's, right. That's not the greatest struggle. If the workers were there, the money would be there. If it was just a matter of governments changing, then God could do it in a moment. But he says that our battle is against rulers, so this is spiritual rulers, powers against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So you have to ask yourself, what is he talking about? Because Paul's just been talking about Husbands loving your wives and like Christ loves the church. You think, how does that relate to some spiritual thing that I can't see? Well, every once in a while, God gives us a window into the heavenly places that we can understand what he means. One example of this is in the book of Job. So you remember the first few chapters where it's like God and Satan are having a really good conversation, really close about this person, Job. And in some way... Satan is able at least then to go into the heavenly places and talk to God and say, look, your servant there, he's not going to, to be faithful to you if you take everything away. So there's some way in which Satan and his minions, his demons, his, the evil people that are around him, that serve him and love him, they're able to interact with our lives individually as God gives permission. So that's one picture. Another picture is in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, there's the description of Daniel praying and praying and praying and for something to happen. And 
unbeknownst to him, there's a spiritual power over a certain place that is a real demonic being of some kind that's keeping Daniel's prayer from being answered. That has a stronghold over a place that Daniel's, care, Daniel's prayer can't be answered. And the way that Daniel finds that out is that an angel comes to him and says, I helped your prayer to be answered more suddenly because here's what's going on behind the scenes. And so whenever we look at the 1040 window, or whenever you guys look at open doors and praying for things, it's not just a matter of carnal means of, okay, if we had more money, if we had more people, if we had more resources or some better strategy. There is a real sense, God tells us, that there are demonic, wicked activities, anything that is opposed to Christ's kingdom coming to earth, that would stop you from doing what you're trying to do. That's what it means that our battle is against not flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. On top of that, if Satan is happy with you not being worried about Christ's kingdom and not being worried about brothers and sisters abroad, then he's going to start fighting you if you focus more on those foreign places. If you start praying fervently for open doors in the places that you're working in, if you start interceding for brothers and sisters that you know of in these places that you work, Satan will do things to try to get you off track. He'll bring trouble into your life, He'll do as he did for Christ and use scriptures and twist them to use them against you. He'll tempt you to fall into sin and temptation. And so you have to stand against those things with this spiritual armor in order to resist the devil. We have the promise that if we resist him, he will flee from us. But he will give his best effort to to get us off our track. We have another picture of the the spiritual forces or the, the realities in heaven that we cannot see. In the book of Revelation, and I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said something like, the book of Revelation is the only book where the number of commentaries increasing also increase the confusion on what's happening there. (laughs) Usually you would hope that you have a commentary about a book and it clarifies things, but that's not the case. There is more confusion about that book and there is more debate about what it means than any other book, I think, in the Bible. Rightfully so, because I don't think I figured it out yet. Uh, I, I even had a class in seminary on the book of Revelation in Greek, thinking this will be it. And I left more confused than I did helped. So, the book of Revelation, if you read it and just sort of fly at a big picture, you'll see something like this. So you have the famous scene uh, in Revelation chapter 5, where John is speaking and he sees this vision. He's trying to describe to us what he sees. And in that vision, he has something where, like, there's a scroll and there's seals, and he says that none are worthy to open the scroll. And then all of a sudden, he's shown that there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. It's Christ, the sacrificed, risen lamb. And that lamb opens the scroll, and it has this beautiful description of, of heaven and the throne room and the lamb being worshipped and praised. And John rejoices because he says this lamb was able to do something nobody else could do. That's chapter 5. And then you go forward and you have like these cycles almost of seven sets of seven, seven signs. There's seven trumpets, there's seven seals, there's seven bowls, and so on. And it's trying to describe some future spiritual reality that can be very confusing. But the point is, in chapter 12 and 13, we see something. So John expects that now that this... Uh, slain lamb was revealed as the one who would be the savior he expects victory for the lamb but if you read chapter 12 and 13 you realize John is almost at the point of despair and you ask yourself why 
And it's because there was one who looked like the lamb, who was a deceiver, who people left worshiping the lamb and went and worshiped this beast, this beast that looked like the Christ. And he's like, what's going on? What's happening? And that for us is a picture of this cosmic battle that is raging right now in the heavenly unseen places where there are two people, two entities, two beings, two things that you can worship. Every single one of us worships something. You have the risen Christ who is the true Savior of the world, who is the one who is owed all of our worship. And if you do not worship Christ, you worship the enemy. You worship Satan, the devil himself. And there is no third option. Sometimes we can look at the lost and we can be compassionate in a wrong way and think, well, you know, if we just go to them with the gospel, then they'll just believe, like, they're waiting for me to bring Christ to them. And that's true that God does prepare us and prepares people that when we go, people are ready to receive the message. But there are some people who you go to them and you explain this wonderful good news that you love so much and they close the door in your face and say, don't come back. There is a spiritual darkness. There is a spiritual uh, kingdom that is at work on this earth. And that is what it talks about with spiritual warfare, that it's not as though one can transfer himself from one to the other. It's that Christ has to do the work to pull people out of darkness and bring them into light. That every person is responsible for worshiping the one true God. That according to Romans chapter 1, they know that there is a God and that He should be worshipped. But because they're under the curse of sin and of death, under, under Adam's lineage, they do not want to love God and worship Him. And so they have this responsibility to repent and to believe. And it's our job to call them to that repentance and to call them to believe and call them to come into the light. And as we saw in the last session, some will say yes and amen, and some will reject us. So there are spiritual forces and darknesses working in ways that we do not know and things that we cannot understand that are beyond our minds of comprehension. But Paul assures us that it's true. So he goes in verse 13, and he explains what it means to take up the full armor of God. He says, verse 13, Therefore, so as a conclusion to this cosmic battle that we have before us, take up the full armor of God, that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, so stand firm. And so he, he, he goes on and he explains what exactly he means. He has a picture here of, of someone getting dressed. So he says, having girded your loins with truth. So if you imagine a, a belt of some sort, if you're dressed, you put a belt on so everything stays together. The truth, in some way, I suppose, is like that, where you put the belt on and the belt secures the truth of God's Word is what is a, a foundation for all of us. It, it ties everything together. All the different pieces of doctrine and, and nuance that you could talk about, the truth kind of encapsulates all of it. And then he goes on to verse 14, having the blessed breastplate of righteousness. If there's a single lie that Satan tells the most that he puts in your heart that sows worry or doubt in what you're thinking is that you are unrighteous. If you know, if you remember anything about the righteousness that you have in Christ, that when you were saved, you were really saved, that before Christ, God looked at you with a frown, and now He sees you with a smile, that before Christ, God saw you and He hated you and your sin, but if you're in Christ, He loves you and He sees nothing but His Son's perfect life. If you remember that righteousness, Satan will do his best in all of his ways of working and all of his devices to get you to not believe that you are truly righteous before God. 
And so if you have the picture of a breastplate of righteousness, it would cover your chest, which would protect your heart. And so maybe Paul's talking about some sort of idea of reminding yourself every day that you are perfectly loved, perfectly chosen, perfectly held in the hand of the Father, and nothing can snatch you from that hand. He talks about in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so you could have all of your armor on, and you could be prepared to walk across a desert or up some mountain, and if you don't have any shoes on, you're not going to get very far. So you have to have shoes, and these shoes that he's talking about are in some way a gospel of peace. And you think, okay, Christ said that he didn't come with peace but with a sword, so what does he mean? The thing with the gospel of peace is that other religions, other ideologies, they're at war with one another. They're trying to win converts to themselves to convince you this is the way and this is the truth. In some ways, Christianity does that. We want people to stop believing the lies that they're worshiping and loving and to come to Christ and worship Him as the one true God. But we're not taking an enemy currently and making him on our side as an enemy to somebody else. Christianity and the truth of the gospel is the one thing that can take the enemies of the gospel and because of the power of Christ's gospel, you can make your enemies your friends. And so it's not a message of dominion of some physical kingdom here and now, but it's a message of peace to the whole world that this Messiah, this Emmanuel, this Savior who has come has brought peace to the earth and here's how you can receive it for yourself. And he goes on in verse 16. Having been dressed fully with all these things, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so if you picture a shield, and there's fiery darts being shot at you, even with a breastplate on, you can't block it. But if you have faith, Paul's saying, if you believe that God will do as he said he will do in protecting you, you can block the, the arrows coming at you. One person said they will go into any place, no matter the cost, no matter the darkness, because they are immune until God is done with them. So if you keep that promise to heart that you are immune from any problem unless God allows it, it gives you a lot of confidence in doing what you're doing. Lastly, in verse 17, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So you have the helmet of salvation. So you have inside of your head, hopefully, a brain that's functioning and with that brain, you can think about the truth of the gospel. So, the helmet of salvation, the knowledge that God has saved you, the knowledge of your previous life before Christ, the knowledge of what He has done for you now. And you also have the sword of the Spirit. So, what do you fight with as a soldier? You've got your full armor on, you've got your shoes covered, you've got your shield, you've got your head covered. If you have an attacker come in close combat, how do you fight him? You don't fight him with a real sword. We're not trying to kill anyone. We're trying to save everyone. You come in with the sword of the Spirit, fighting battles with the Word of God. Yes. So it's like I told you before, the, the very tip of the spear of missions are preachers, evangelists, and teachers. People who have in their mouth the Word of God to proclaim. There's the, the famous section, Romans chapter 10, of people who need to hear to believe. And how will they believe if they don't hear? And how do they hear if there is no preacher sent to them? So those who bring the good news of the gospel will have the message of the gospel in their mouths. And they will proclaim as the sword of the Spirit, fighting back darkness, this is the truth and you should believe it. I went through that kind of quickly on purpose because this whole passage uh, bothers me. In the sense that I read many commentators and they all 
didn't know why Paul used this metaphor. The best one, the best, most convincing, I guess, was a guy who said, well, maybe Paul is sitting in prison in Rome and he was looking at these Roman soldiers who were getting dressed. And if you know about Rome, you know that their army was famous, their army was strong, that these soldiers were well-trained and taught and they you know, had a big conquest and had a lot of territory at one time. So Paul was sitting in prison, writing to Ephesus, and he was picturing these Roman soldiers getting dressed. And he was saying, okay, in the same way that these carnal, fleshly Romans get dressed for, for war, you, Christian, also get dressed in the same way. So you, you, you put on your, your breastplate, you put on your shoes, you put on your helmet, you pick up your sword. Like, okay, all that can make sense, I guess. But still, it doesn't fully make sense because why would Paul adopt some worldly metaphor and just make it Christian? He has before him an, an entire Old Testament that says all kinds of things that are, that are enlightening to the Christian life. Why would he just pick some Roman soldier? But if you have a Bible like mine, you'll see from verse 14 to verse 17, a lot of those phrases are capitalized. And if you look at why they're capitalized, it's because he's quoting the Old Testament. Yes. And so then you look at the references and you see a lot of it comes from the book of Isaiah. So I began to look back at some older commentators in the book of Isaiah, and it took me to Isaiah chapter 59, if you'll go there with me. So here's the problem is, I don't think Paul was just taking some silly illustration from some worldly soldier. I think he had grounds from Isaiah as to why he was using this example of wearing spiritual armor. So we read this chapter earlier, uh, before the first service, so it almost spoiled if you were listening close enough. But starting in verse 1, Isaiah proclaims, Behold, the the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. And so he's talking about salvation. Whenever he talks about the Lord's hand, it's God reaching out and doing something. But there's a problem. Verse 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So he's talking to Israel at this point, Isaiah is, and he's telling Israel, there is need for you to be saved, but you have ignored God long enough that God has pulled back from you and he will not hear your cries for salvation. And so we could go on, and we don't have time in the rest of this chapter to see all the things in which... uh, Isaiah describes as these people's lost condition. It talks about unrighteousness fully and plainly reaching every area of life. When God pulls back from a society, there are certain signs or things that will show you that God is not working in those people, that his judgment has fallen upon them. It says things like, in the noonday, the brightest part of the day, there is still darkness. You can think about the family in the home when there is no father in the home with the wife and loving each other in the appropriate way. There's, there's chaos and there's disorder and there's no justice. You can think about the courts. If there's a judge and the judge is not a righteous judge, he will do as he desires according to whatever corruption he wants to follow and not carrying out God's desires for, for righteousness to be had. So Isaiah is lamenting and he's saying... You people are lost and you've transgressed against God. You need salvation, but God is refusing to save you. But he, he gives us a picture, uh, starting in the middle of verse 15. 
he turns from just looking at the rotten mass of humanity and their darkness and wickedness, and he turns to look and says, the Lord saw. And it was displeasing that there was no justice. And so it's almost as if God was standing up in the midst of this dark generation, seeing how wicked his people Israel had become, seeing all the second chances that he gave Israel of, try this and try this and here's a person and here's a man. And he said, this isn't right, it's not how it should be. It's almost as if God gave for a period of time for Israel all these leaders and all these men and all these kings to come up and to be his man to save Israel. And he had to do it to prove a point that no single man could save the nation. So now he looks and he says, please, that there is no justice. It says in verse 16, he saw there was no man, but he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. He's looking around like to every single, I guess, wealthy or prominent man on the earth at this time and saying, are you going to do something? Are you going to do something? I think of this text whenever I think about promises that men make to, to, to change the world. Promises that men make to, to stand up and to change something for justice, for righteousness, for some better society. And I think, as far as God grants it, may He help you do that. But I think only God, with His gospel, is the one who can change the world. Amen. So he, he goes on, and because there is no man who will be able to intercede or to help these people who need justice brought to them, the problem is not justice out there, but in here we have it all right. God saw the world as it was, that every single man was walking in darkness and needed a light to come. So he continues in verse 17. Oh, excuse me. The middle of verse 16. It said, Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. So it's though God, not God himself, but God prepared a servant to come, and God was going to dress this servant in a certain way. In verse 17. On this servant that God had prepared to bring justice to the earth, it says he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and he put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and wrapped himself with a mantle of zeal. So you see that he's dressing this servant. This, this man now is who he's speaking of. And if you know anything about Christ, you know that he's speaking about his son, that Christ prepared his son, the servant, for battle to come to the earth to bring justice to this earth. And on this servant, he's dressing him, preparing him for battle. He wraps him with a, a mantle, with a zeal, with a, a measure of vengeance in his heart to come and to take all those lips and all those mouths, all those people who claim praise for themselves, and to cast those praises back to his Father in heaven. And it says in verse 18, According to their deeds, he will repay. So Christ is coming, and for every wicked doer, every evil person, everyone actively opposing God and leading others to do the same, Christ will fight them. But he says, in the middle of verse 18, he's bringing wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. But it says, to the coastlands he will make recompense. And what does that mean? Verse 19, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And so you see this picture that, yes, God could have, with a single proverbial snap of his fingers, wiped out all the wickedness on the earth. He, he could have destroyed the earth and said, no, I'm done with it. But he made a promise to many men long before. He made a promise to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David, to all this long line of godly men, that through Abraham, 
all the nations of the earth would, would be blessed. And so you have here this picture of Christ coming, and Christ knows that promise. God is not going to go back on His promise to save some. And so with some, Christ, this, the servant of the Lord, will come, and He will wipe them away off the face of the earth. But for some, He extends His arm for salvation. He says, come in and hear the good news of the Father. It says that His purpose is to come and to bring fear of His name on all of the earth. From the sun's rising to its setting, so encompassing all that is the earth, every corner of every place, a rushing wind will come and salvation will be brought. And so we're kind of jumping ahead and saying that this is Christ, but Isaiah makes clear that it is Christ. In verse 20 he says, A Redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. And so he's talking about not just bringing justice as like a single moment of, okay, for a generation, things are set right. But when he says Redeemer, he's talking about somebody who will take everything that is wrong with the world, everything that you could look and see, this shouldn't be this way. And Christ turns it on his head and he makes it right. And he extends salvation beyond just Israel. If it's going to all the coastlands, it's going to all the people. And then in verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth won't depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, or from your offspring, offspring, now and forevermore. And so this single act that God did with his strong right hand is not just for Israel. It's not just for the people in this day of Isaiah, seven centuries before Christ came. This is the promise of Christ coming 700 years before he actually came to the earth, which for us was 2,000 years ago. And he came to bring justice in this way to the earth to take all the praise that was due for his father and giving it to him, to take all the injustice and to make it right, to make a way, not that the whole earth will be saved now, not that things will get better and better and then eventually we'll all be a Christian nation, but a way in which Christ will preserve a people for himself, that he will continue to add to his numbers, that he will continue to build his church, because Christ himself is the one with the sword fighting. But he also is the sacrifice who died for these people for whom he came to save. And so Christ has purchased people for himself in every place, in every corner of this earth. And part of the urgency that we have in taking that message to them is that these people never hear of this mighty, anointed Messiah, Savior who's come. They will never be able to believe in this Savior. We want to see people, as Christ does, from every corner of every nation. And so whenever you fix your mind back on Ephesians... Don't think about some Roman soldier getting dressed. Think about Christ himself who went before you in every sense of the word. He didn't just show up on the earth, walk, you know, as God walked on the earth, do things in the power of God and then just go home. But I believe whenever Christ performed miracles, whenever Christ was on the earth, he did it as a man. He did it as a man without sin, but he did it as a man. Christ knew what it was to be weak. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to need to spend time with his father in secret prayer. He knew what, what it was to have a big decision like choosing disciples. And he sat before God all night in prayer. He knew what it was to face temptation. And he fought that temptation with scripture. But he also knew the promises that were given to Israel and to the Gentiles and to all of us. That he had a role to fulfill in being the Messiah sent from God. And so whenever you think about the possibilities of the world out there, And maybe you shrink back in fear and think, 
there's no way that we can do anything. There's no way that we can have some part in this. Remember that in an army, in an actual army here on earth, if there's a leader of the army and he's weak, the soldiers will all be weak. They won't be led well. They won't have any direction. But whenever the, command, the commander of our army is strong, we as his soldiers can be strong. And Christ, as our army's commander, as our leader, as the servant, as the one carrying the sword, as the one who brought the gospel of peace, there are none stronger than He is. Amen. So whenever we go out, if you go to your workplace, if you go to your home, if you go to your friend's house, if you go to the mission field, wherever you go, you have this Christ with you and for you and behind you. And you have no reason to fear because everything is in His hand. So may He empower us. May He strengthen us. May He give us dreams and visions and, and ideas beyond what we could ever think. And may He make us a people who pray and trust Him for more. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank You for Christ, Lord, who came to this earth. Lord, who laid aside that which was His in heaven, who gave Himself to, Lord, to walking humbly on this earth. Lord, we would be among those who, who ridiculed Him, who beat Him, who spit upon Him, if it were not for Your grace. So God, we thank You for Your work in each and every one of our lives. We thank You for Christ's ministry to us now. Lord, sitting and ruling at Your right hand. God, we long to be or better servants for Your Son. We're better laborers, better ministers. We long to have or the eyes of faith to, to believe You for more. God, we pray that You would help us, Lord, this day to walk as Christ walked. Lord, having a daily Lord, trust and, and faith in you. God, help us as we make our, our journey home. Lord, help us as we look forward to, to being with you in glory. But God, help us to continue to fight until that day comes. Lord, we ask for your help this day in Christ's name. Amen.